0: Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analyst, and to remind our listeners of an important note, the opinions given by Jim, me, or any of our guests are our own and not necessarily those of Refinitiv or our parent company, the London Stock Exchange Group, also known as LSEG. So we have a talented team of analysts based in Houston that cover the Western Hemisphere energy markets, and we, we thought we'd start cycling them in so that you, our listeners, could get to know them all better. And with that, we decided to come out of the gate hard today with a heavy hitter. She's modest. So let me tell you this, she's an engineer, has appeared on partner webinars, runs the weekly global clean call is a contributor to Reuters polls. That could go on for a while. Senior analyst, Ashwarya Bogai. Now, we're gonna run This one, uh, old-school rundown tank today. So with that, Jim, why don't you tell us about detectives, rock stars, and Canadians?
1: (laughs) Ever wonder where the concept of fandom came from? The Beatles? Elvis? Think about 60 years before the King, and this guy wasn't even a real person. Yet, when he was killed off in the short story, The Final Problem, readers trolled the author for 10 years until he brought back the character of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes was the original OG, the rock star before there were rock stars. But what made him so popular? He was a man of the times as Britain and the rest of the world was moving from the incredible scientific and cultural advances of the end of the Victorian age into the dichotomy between the elitist ideology and the reality of the masses in the Edwardian age. This created great wealth for some, and struggles for most, as the world marched into World War I. Holmes was the classic Marcus Aurelius Stoic, with noticeable physical prowess and a keen sense of reasoning and chemistry, specifically poisons. Londoners were so enamored by these outward traits, they completely missed the implications and pathologies of these traits. So I'm not trying to be a political commentator. But sometimes politics determines energy policy, and sometimes energy determines political policy. When a country like Canada is one of the biggest energy producers in the world that is massively short energy, there's no way around it. So the 2022 outlook for Canada. Trucks clogging the capital city of Ottawa? Did not see that coming. However, message loud and clear. It's a bit beyond the scope of this podcast, but Coastal GasLink Pipeline and all the implications with that and the new customer base for Canadian Molecules, this is a huge deal to get completed. Continuing on with pipelines, the Enbridge Line 3 replacement has added 370,000 barrels a day to a total of 760,000 barrel a day takeaway. No doubt that will have a positive effect on Hardesty differentials as well as some differentials downstream from that. Thing to note here, the other mega project going on in Canada, Trans Mountain, isn't expected to be completed until Q1 of 2023. The Canadian Natural, Casey Southern, Canadian Pacific Love Triangle has reached the name-calling a slapping stage. Oddly, in Q3, look for President Biden to be the cold shower on this hate fest. Eastern crude production will see Hibernia continue to decrease ever so slowly in production, whereas Hebron will increase and is looking to double production by 2030. Lots of light-heavy implications in the Atlantic market, as Hibernia is a 33 API crude and Hebron is a 20 API crude. Westside will only increase its rock star status, with the before-mentioned Line 3 expansion, giving Suncor and Synovas incentive to increase production between 5 and 7%. CapEx is already up 20%. Imperial's Curl grade will increase production closer to 25% in 2022. Why? Because we all just want to be big rock stars. Living hilltop houses, driving 15 cars. Ah!
0: Ah, so you were the one that supported Nickelback. I mean, I suppose that's okay because Nickelback was responsible for Theory of Dead, man. I could see you rumbling, but
1: instead, why don't you uh, tell us about the U.S. instead? So lots to cover here. As fans of the stories are well aware, the first half, and maybe a little more, of Sherlock's adventures, there doesn't seem to be any action. At times, it doesn't even read like he's the main character of the story. It reads like the problem is the story. And like most things in life, it's a little twisty. However, until the story is clear and the root cause revealed, the solution is clouded by problems in every minute detail. Again, a bit out of scope of this podcast, but fertilizer prices doubled from mid-2021 to the higher on Thanksgiving. Currently up about 50% from mid-2021. This, with high diesel prices, means the two most volatile pieces of the inflation formula will come down a bit through 2022, but will remain highly elevated through the year. m activity looks to be very strong in 2022, albeit more around the logistics and ancillary segments of the business. There aren't any bargains if one is looking to replace reserves. On a related note, The trend of the last five to seven years of private equity-backed projects, scooping up assets, building a business around it, and then spinning off for multiples of the investment will not happen in the PV or solar space. The margins and consistent cash flow just simply aren't there. The new Green Deal crowd in Washington are already trying to get Build Back Better elements appended to unrelated bills. Doubt they have much, if any, success. Ironically, though, if the House and Senate do flop over to Republican control, look for some of these elements to get passed as Republicans bargain in order to get their agenda accomplished. That, of course, is a 2022-2023 thing. It looks very doable for crude oil production to get to 12.3 million barrels a day from our current 11.7 million barrels a day. The chances are slim and none and slim left town we see 13 million barrels a day anytime soon. We will see political maneuvering around the waters of the US rule, and for the attorneys out there, the Clean Water Act of 1972. Holden I'm looking at you. Expect this maneuvering to be highly contentious. I maintain my view of a $75 to $80 average range for WTI for 2022. Higher in the first half, lower in the second, with some time spent around $100. There is massive open interest in the options market around the $100 strike, and this is going to act as gravity. When we get close, expect volatility in price. Cracks will stay strong throughout the year, and some idle equipment may even see a new life. Carbon capture and storage will expand, although I suspect these first generation of projects will be expensive and really serve to green up a particular company more than produce huge results. So for a projection on the Pemex Deer Park refinery purchase, may I introduce Refinitiv's senior energy analyst covering the gasoline markets, Ashwarya Gogoi.
2: Hello.
1: Ashwarya. what do you see as the impact of this refinery now being owned by Pemex?
2: So the sale of Shell's deal Park refinery majority stake to Pemex, it has been looked with a lot of anticipation from Mexico because it directly aligns with their strategy of achieving energy dependence and will aid in reaching their fuel output goals, even though the production is outside the country. We'll get to the actual numbers when discussing Mexico. The biggest impact will come via flows of product. This is not a demand boost, but a repositioning of supply. Cracks and Gulf Coast will be supportive, but they're going to be anyway. Also, I don't see a reason for Gulf Coast bases to move much, if any. Pemex will certainly import more from Houston and the barrels that get displaced will likely take the shorter journey to New York Harbor.
1: I want to be great like Elvis without the tassels. (laughs) Perhaps President Orbitor shoots a little lower than Elvis something more like a Jonas Brother or maybe Bieber. Mexico will continue on its path of renationalizing oil production, refining and distribution, although that doesn't appear to be the goal. It appears to be the process by which AMLO is using to root out corruption. Along that same line, Pemex is taking control of the giant Zama field. The expectation before all the bickering with Talus Energy was that this field would be online in 2022 with production near a million barrels a day. Funding that kind of growth seems far-fetched. However, PEMEX may have freed up some money from... Dos Bocos may have reached its Rickenbach Falls moment. That's where Sherlock Holmes sacrifices himself to stop Professor Moriarty with the crude exports being limited in 2022 and banned in 2023 except of course to the Deer Park refinery. Mexico is getting very close to that much vaunted energy independence that most hold near and dear. Ashwaria, what do you see as the impact for Mexico of the ownership of the Deer Park refinery?
2: Jim, as you say, it may in fact be the death of Dos Bocas or it may be just a medically induced coma. Time will tell. We can see Mexico is importing about 180,000 barrels a day in the north. That seems to be sufficient to supply the mining and manufacturing sectors in the north as well, as the boost Monterey needs to balance demand. The 450,000 barrels a day, more in the summer and less in the winter, that are imported into mostly Tuxpan and Veracruz is where the difference will be. The difference being that Pemex will take more of the advantage barrels from Deer Park. Advantage because Deer Park will process equity Pemex crude barrels and return essentially equity refined products. This will definitely limit the vendor list of importers and save Pemex in the neighborhood of $2 billion a year. So, Corey, if I understand the old school rundown tank reference correctly, That means you have something to say about the rest of Latin
0: America. Yeah, thanks, Ashwari, and thanks, Straight Eight. And for those of you that don't get that reference, you need to go back and listen to the previous podcast. If you haven't heard it, then you're really missing out. But uh, that's exactly right. I'm glad someone is listening to me. So we know the old adage about the markets being driven by fear and greed this year and in the years following. I'd say that fear and greed will actually work together towards the same goal, rather than against each other, as they often do. And what I mean by that is this. Crude prices are high, and uh, I am of the opinion that crude prices are going to stay high this year. We certainly have geopolitical tensions that can sway supply, demand, prices one way or another. And we have the largest economy in the world, the United States, set to actively slow economic growth. And a brief aside here, I'm specifically talking about the Fed and raising interest rates. I know there are a few that believe that Raising rates will signal the end of the party, but in reality, the Fed is caught between taking actions to limit inflation and with those same actions pushing the country too far and it resulting in a recession. Of course, there are opportunities here for policy mistakes, but raising carefully to cool it off does not end growth and does not end energy demand and energy demand growth. There's also the argument that often goes that – You know, higher dollar strength equals lower oil prices, which, yes, sometimes. But if you are a customer and receive my Thursday report, then you can see where this concept often decouples. Now, when I started preparing for this podcast, that was the case. So the oil market is being more driven by supply-demand fundamentals and even the perception of those fundamentals by the paper markets. More than a simple dollar-up, crude-down type of paradigm. So fundamentals rule the day. Economic growth is occurring. We have covid exhaustion leaving people to ignore lockdown orders to not enforce lockdown orders to drive trucks to nation capitals to protest covid regulations etc so economic growth is occurring and the crude market is tight opec seems to be struggling to bring production online and there are fears of capacity being tight and us producers are not chasing oil prices even though there is incentive to do so albeit in the face of a more challenging regulatory environment but again for south america In the areas where it is most possible, I think the greed part is to produce oil and export to the world market to capture those prices we haven't seen in quite a while, especially when it appears that other locales are either unwilling or unable to do so. And for fear, not the traditional fear we think of when considering the market, risk-off behavior and such, but fear that in-situ assets need to be produced sooner than later as the world attempts to move more away from fossil fuels.
1: So on a more granular level, how do you think specific countries and or regions will fare this year based on this theme?
0: Yes, excellent question, and I said it plays out differently by area. And I say area because the relationship forming, forming between Brazil and its north northeastern neighbors promises to push that area of South America into a production powerhouse. Uh, but for a brief lull back in Early 20 teens, Brazil had been increasing crude oil production year over year since the late 80s. In fact, out of the South American countries that produced oil before the pandemic Brazil, Ecuador, Argentina, Colombia, and of course Venezuela Brazil is the only country to actually increase production in 2020. Now, the country itself claims, or excuse me, aims to produce 5.3 million barrels per day by 2030. We are currently just over 3 million barrels per day, and Petrobras is responsible for 2.6. Over the next few years, significant developments are expected to happen, such as adding something like eight FPSOs to Tupi and otherwise invest $17 billion there. Back in December, Petrobras replaced a $4.3 billion revolving credit facility that matured in 2023 with a $5 billion credit facility that matures in 2026. So ducks and robe. what does that mean for this year? It means that we're going to see production reach about 3.2 million barrels per day. And not surprisingly, the two largest importers of Brazilian crude, China and the U.S., will continue to be ready customers for Brazilian production. I say largest importers, but China dwarfs the U.S. in this regard, closing in on half a million barrels per day in 2021 to the U.S.'s 120,000 barrels per day. And thus far in January, we've tracked nearly 14 million barrels en route directly to China versus the U.S. taking only 3.3. But again, region, not just Brazil. In Guyana, the plans to add FPSOs are, are open and public. This year, and actually this month, we'll see production more than double, with the addition of a second FPSO bringing production up to 340,000 barrels per day. Now, ExxonMobil and partners have made their 20th discovery in the Stabroek block. And there have been discoveries in Suriname as well. And here's where it gets interesting. The three countries, Guyana, Suriname, and Brazil, are in talks to turn the region into a oil-petrochemicals-industrial supercomplex. Petrobras believes that at least 14 of its wells are connected to the suriname guiana trend anyway, and now we can see Brazil investing in the other two countries. Electricity interchange helping the country with building a gas pipeline network to promote petrochemicals and to supply gas to an aluminum smelter to process Guiana's bauxite ore. Also, talks of building a deep water port in Guiana and a highway system from Brazil to support the port. This obviously affects more than just the energy industry and will not be completed this year, even if the countries come to an agreement. However, what we will start to see is an evolving industry here and the potential for heightened products demand over the next few years in the region. Given the lack of refining, refining in Guiana, Guiana, Suriname, and Brazil normally being short diesel, I expect the US to meet the demand here, especially as Mexico continues with reform and affords the risk of
1: pushing out refined products imports. So you mentioned that you see things playing out differently across the continent. How so?
0: I yes, I do. And being conscious of time. I won't dive too deeply into each one, but taking it, you know, counterclockwise. Venezuela. Uh, the country gets a lot of press, and after years of decline, production bottomed at 650,000 barrels per day before rising to a pre-pandemic level of 770,000 barrels per day. Since then, production fell to 350,000 barrels per day and has recently worked its way back up to 660. Now, this is due to Venezuela's deal with Iran for Iran to provide diluent, which saw Venezuelan ports essentially overwhelmed with Iranian vessels offloading diluent the last few months and with operations that are seemingly being unencumbered by the U.S. or others. Forecast of Venezuelan production is to reach 775,000 barrels per day again this year. Not the annual average, but at the high level. And with that, I say, you know, maybe. As production has increased and the Pedavesa attempts to export more, the same issues that plagued exports in the past have reared their heads again. Quality issues, tank and storage tank issues and increased inventories of grades the market is not demanding. Uh, so with that, I think annual average production for Venezuela this year stays below the 700,000 barrels per day mark. Uh, Colombia, issues in South America centering partly around government response to COVID, but also over issues like the illegal drug trade have led the political climate to shift towards the left, This is true in Colombia that faces a presidential election this year and where the leading candidate is anti-coal and anti-oil. Now, to put it briefly, if he wins, one of the first items he has promised is to end exploration contracts and to work to halt crude oil exports. So the industry will not grind to a halt this year, but it will certainly be under pressure. And I. Directly counterclockwise, but uh, Peru and Chile, uh, not much of an oil industry in either country, but new, relatively new presidents that are inexperienced, leftist, and not particularly oil friendly. Uh, Ecuador, last year, Ecuador loosened regulations and hopes to significantly increase oil production that failed to grow for years. Really, the purpose here was to aid in repaying the country's debts to China. That has seen contentiousness with. Indigenous peoples and, of course, issues like the recent pipeline leaks that have shown up on mainstream media. Now, most of Ecuador's oil exports make their way to the U.S., particularly California. And with developments in the industry like shutting down oil production in Los Angeles and the canceling of the recent Gulf of Mexico lease sale due to not considering the impact on global GHG emissions – one has to wonder how much Ecuador will be able to increase its productions and exports. And Argentina. Capping it off with, for my section with Argentina today, I've, I've spoken about Argentina here before, basically, how regulations were being relaxed and incentives being brought up to encourage foreign investment. Uh, recall that the country wants to double oil production to about a million barrels per day. Most of what is produced in the past was consumed locally. Well, Vaca marta has begun to deliver. Last month the country saw its highest production in almost a decade, five hundred and sixty thousand barrels per day, owed to two hundred and thirty two freshly drilled wells in Vacamorta, and a total of two hundred and seventy six new wells drilled in the country in twenty twenty one. This year I think we see production reach six hundred and fifty thousand barrels per day. And
1: that's all for me today. Jim, any closing thoughts? As we've heard from all the speakers today, not Only are the Cruton products markets not near death, but in fact, they're growing and growing substantially. I'll point out that 32 of Arthur Conan Doyle's 60 pieces of literature that featured Sherlock Holmes were written after Holmes was thought to be killed off. There's a positive ending to the story. We just don't know it yet. Hey, hey, I want to be a rock star.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Jim. And thank you for Ashwarya for joining us today. And a special thank you to our listeners for tuning in. As always, please feel free to reach out to any of us at any time with your questions and with feedback. Thank you.